Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Radiant. Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Today on Deep Background, something a little bit different. I have been watching very closely the debates about the future of virtual reality and augmented reality. Since the beginning of COVID, all of us have had to explore making human connections, having conversations, learning and engaging with others from our desks, staring at our screens in ways we did not do previously. That entire process has led me to think increasingly about what kinds of human engagement can happen in virtual space. One direction this might take us, and I hope to discuss this in a future episode, is the question of virtual reality, augmented reality, and the new modes and platforms of engagement that will take place in our lives. Another is to think about activities that increasingly take place not only in the real world, but also almost exclusively online. Gaming is one such activity. We hear a lot about the gamification of trading, a topic that we've done an episode on, and about the gamification of a wider range of human interactive activities, including coding. But what about the gamification of gaming itself? What I'm referring to is the esports industry, in which, it turns out, millions and millions of people watch others playing games, either at an extraordinarily high competitive level for rewards and for money, or alternatively, in an entertainment mode, as gamers who are particularly clever or sophisticated or knowledgeable stream their own games for the edification and entertainment of their fans. This is an emergent industry whose participants tend to be young, and so perhaps it's not surprising that leading figures in this industry are young themselves. Case in point, our guest today, Nicole Lapointe Jameson, 
who's the CEO of a North American esports organization called Evil Geniuses, or EG, which is one of the oldest and most recognizable brands in professional gaming, or so I'm told, going back all the way to 1999. Nicole, for her part, barely goes back to 1999 herself. She was born in 1994, which makes her an unusual person to be running a large and growing organization as a CEO. To top it all off, she's a woman and an African-American in an industry that tends to be stereotyped as one for men, primarily for white and perhaps for Asian men. As you're about to hear, Nicole is an extraordinary person, and she sat down with me to explain her industry and what she does in it. Nicole, thank you so much for joining me. This is one of those episodes on Deep Background where instead of talking about some well-thumbed area where I and the listeners all think we're big experts, we're instead exploring a whole field of human endeavor that is not actually all that new, but is new to many of us as observers. And that's esports as an industry and as a concept. So I wonder if you would start by just assuming that we don't understand exactly what esports are. We don't understand why it is that other people would want to watch people playing video games and begin by just explaining to us what this industry is and why we should start caring about it. Of course. And first of all, Noah, thank you for having me. Always glad to bring others on board to the surprisingly vast and deep world of esports. So if you're coming from zero, esports is competitive gaming, where we bridge industries that resemble a lot of traditional sports, but also resemble modern day entertainment. And so the best way to think about my universe, I, I run an esports organization called Evil Geniuses, is think of us like the University of Michigan, like U of M's athletics department where they have basketball and football and soccer that have distinct players on distinct schedules and a very robust back office that bridges athletics to sponsorships, to brand, to health and wellness, all to support the different players and their seasons. But instead of University of Michigan, I am Evil Geniuses and I have Counter-Strike and Dota and League of Legends, distinct player athletes with distinct schedules and all of the same back office needs to support and make sure we are competitively viable, financially viable, and culturally viable. And it is often surprising for people to hear the level of play for these athletes isn't someone that could just mosey on and say, oh, you know, I'm pretty good at Mario Kart. Let me show up one day and, and be an esports pro. These are athletes that have typically been playing at the best level that exists in the world from a long time at a young age. And when they come into an esports organization, it looks like traditional sports. You have training time, you have physical fitness, health, wellness time, you have scrimming and review and the infrastructure around these athletes and players is robust and deep and we heavily invest in these games. And so a lot of this mirrors traditional sports where I think the analogy falls off and I don't have a really good way to paint that picture yet is we also have what I mentioned earlier, this entertainment side where unlike traditional sports, where fans tend to be geo-affiliated or inherited, we are digital and global. Our players come from all over the world. We're not locked into a region. I'm not, even though we're Seattle-based, I am not the Seattle something, the Seattle EG. Um, our fans are truly global. 
so many questions immediately yes. come into my mind. Let, <laughs> okay. let's, let's start with what maybe is a silly question, which is there's a movement from we all play sports outdoors to we watch sports on television. And, you know, a whole generation, an older generation, even than mine, was skeptical of that, saying, well, why don't you go out and play the sport? Why do you want to sit at home and watch the sport? And now that objection seems hopelessly dated because, of course, it's possible to do both. And televised sports became a vast, multi-billion, maybe even trillion-dollar industry over the course of 50 years. Are there similar objections? There must be similar objections to esports saying that somehow, why are you watching people do something that they're in fact doing technologically? And is the answer just sort of grow up? You know, like that's the same objection that people made to watching basketball on television and it didn't make any sense really. And it makes even less sense in this context. Uh, I actually think the analogy transfers really well. Like the beauty of esports, both the athletes and the fan is that we're young, digital, and very diverse. But the altitude of play and competence at the pro level, because then these are oftentimes six-figure to seven-figure base salaries of athletes. These aren't the run-of-a-mill, picked-up-off-a-street corner players. They are the top 30 in the world. So similarly to why you want to watch NBA, the depth of prestige and ability to perform in some of these games is unparalleled. And so that's exciting to watch. The esports athletes also play for the same reasons. So so they just do it so well. The answer is they just yes. do it so well. And the specific skills that they have are some combination of hand-eye coordination, conceptual ability, strategic ability. It's the, it's a full range of skills, presumably. Yes. Probabilistic thinking, quick communication, similar to an options trader or a sports athlete, right? Let's talk for a second about this non-locality that you mentioned. So one of the fascinating things about sports, both at the university level, but also at the professional level, is that over time, it came to be one of the leading factors in a lot of countries in unifying people within a geographic area, right? Originally, the reason you had local teams is that people had strong local identities and people who were starting teams wanted to make money. And they said, well, if we identify right. the team with a place or with a university, then there will be attachment to it. But then things flipped. And as our identities as members of a neighborhood or a region weakened, the sports teams became the glue that held us together. In that sense, what your industry is about is about cosmopolitanism in the deepest sense, right? It's about a world where we no longer think oh, I'm from New England, so I'm a member of Red Sox Nation by default. Or, you know, I have to be a, a Patriots fan and there's nothing I can do about that because I was born that way. It's like my religion. In your world, I can pick and choose my affiliations no matter where they are in the world. So how do people choose whom they're going to root for and root against? Oh, I love this question because it it's surprisingly contentious in the space, especially when talking to people that come from traditional sports into the esports area, is the lack of geo-affiliation is puzzling. But I, I find it exciting for us because we have a bigger pie to play from. And that's, again, where the entertainment sprinkle comes in more like WWE than even, you know, the Lakers or the Yankees the brand identity of the organization matters and how an organization presents itself beyond just what games they compete in. Because not every esports team or organization plays the same games. So there's some fan stratification by what game are they in. If you're a Rocket League fan, you tend to not be a fan of League of Legends per se. 
And then it's how does the org represent themselves? And some of that, just like in traditional sports, is a win-loss ratio. People like to follow the winners or they like to follow the underdogs. So there's that bimodal distribution. But then how do we and how do organizations represent themselves in the culture and engage with fans in unique ways? That's the big why for creating a compelling esports organization with a distinct set of fandom. One of the things that stunned me in preparing for our conversation was just the size of the industry. I, 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 if someone had asked me to guess, I would have been off by orders of magnitude. <laughs> yes, it is a huge industry. Whatever way you slice the pie, if it's active viewers on different distribution platforms, because you can watch esports in a variety of ways, especially if you have an internet connection. If you count gamers as part of the esports industry, people who game... There's more of those than people who don't game, especially under the age of 30. Um, And if you consider the global reach, especially in the APAC region, the millions of concurrent viewers you could have at a time in a day is unparalleled to many other traditional sports. We can sometimes reach on our peak seasons on social media, more viewers in a day than certain hockey teams get in a season. And Though the fandom, the eyeballs are large, what I find more as a business person compelling and exciting is the dollars are starting to pace and grow to reflect a lot of the magnitude of sponsorship and spend in traditional sports in the esports space. As people start to understand the true volume of fans that are hard to advertise to, hard to reach organically in other ways, um, and where they are and who they watch finding brands, finding distribution platforms, and even finding linear distribution platforms like TV, try to reach and understand how can they have esports showcased is unbelievable. And so I believe there's a new zoo study out that shows the esports industry is valued a little less than a billion targeted for next year in terms of spend and revenue in the space. So it's it's exciting how quickly it's growing from even five, 10 years ago, it was relatively grassroots and not well-established or defined. We'll be right back. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system 
with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic. Nicole, your, your Wikipedia entry, assuming that it's accurate, oh. has you as 27 years old. Uh, is that true, first of all? <laughs> it, it is true. <laughs> so how does a 27-year-old end up as CEO of a major company in this developing space? A lot of stumbling up. There can't have been that much. There's just, just not enough time. So I have a very non-linear path into esports. And I, I would say my age is maybe surprising for the space, but not completely unprecedented as historically leaders in esports either were in esports veterans for a while who typically were players and kind of worked their way up or traditional sports executives who were plopped in. That's changed a bit. Prior to this, I actually worked for an investment firm in Chicago. I focused on distressed asset turnarounds, which is um, maybe not a great signal for those that are more financially savvy, understanding my entry into esports. But EG came to me actually as an investment opportunity. I was all jazzed for a board seat. But at the time, the company resembled a distressed asset or a true startup. Um, that being said, what was interesting about EG is despite me coming in a little less than three years ago, it had been a brand that it is actually one of the oldest esports organizations in the world. And that's not super interesting in general, but I would say it's quite insightful for EG in that to exist from 1999 as a 
then niche gaming club and survive and bring in sponsorships and keep your brand um, and build and grow and build that long-term fandom and survive tech changes, game changes, and still stay culturally relevant was exciting. So from an investment conversion into operating position, it wasn't that different from things I had done before, but definitely the coolest operating company I've been able to get my hands on in my history of insure tech and SaaS businesses and hardware uh, technology. But I've always loved gaming from a personal passion point. So I understood the space. I was familiar with the space and I was excited to help carve out what ought to be in esports as I wasn't seeing voices or perspectives like mine and our firm represented in the space. So I'm wondering whether the sort of stereotypical picture of the industry, which may not be accurate, as heavily male, heavily white and Asian, as an African-American woman, is that a plus for you that you, you come in and say, hey, I have a different perspective? Or is it altogether irrelevant in an enterprise that ultimately is about avatars on screens much more mm -hmm. than it's about who you are on the other side of the console? It was a bit of an interesting challenge, more from a personal perspective, as it, I think you were quite polite with it. Gaming has stereotypes of who is a gamer and what do they act like that are not good, are not positive, rife with toxicity and juvenile behavior, to call it nicely. Um, and coming into a space where I was different in industry background, different in how I appeared, I was a newcomer into a relatively gate-kept community of who's in esports e and who's not, had personal and professional challenges. But I think that actually has become EG's like war cry in how we have been able to thrive in the past two years and differentiate our brand. And I can't underline that it or can't undermine really that it was easy because it it wasn't. It's mm -hmm. truly carving a path that hadn't been carved. And the anonymity of the internet can be difficult to navigate as people love to use that to their advantage to be toxic. But like tends to attract like. And I've been able to, I'm lucky that I've had mentorship and leadership, a strong advisory board and friends in the space that are excited and compelled by why and what we do to make sure the space is safer. So, Nicole, when you talk about toxicity, is toxicity an existential threat to the esports industry or to the gaming industry? And alternatively, is the perception of toxicity also a kind of existential threat separate from the underlying reality. Mm. Oh, I, I love that you've broken it up into two. So for the former, there is a threat of toxicity because just like how people tend to make bad decisions in groupthink, people tend to make bad decisions under the cover of anonymity. And we, we actually, we did a study on this. We partnered with YouGov, a data and survey company, um, and looked to understand toxic behaviors. And we found that a lot in gaming, whether it's through harassment or rude language, um, et cetera, is learned. It doesn't appear until later in life. But if, you know, if parents don't understand what their kids are doing, if there's no checks and balances either by the game and the system itself, that perpetuates and becomes a, an acceptable standard, which really isn't acceptable. You can't act like you might in a Call of Duty game in the workplace or in a group project in college. And 
that needs to be addressed. And there's a lot of moving pieces in terms of who is the addressee of this problem. Is it parents? Is it developers? Is it the content creators? But it's something that creates tangible. And what we found in our, our study is we actually, it does create tangible negative results and that people either don't want to, for example, have their mic on in game and talk, which impedes communication for certain games and impedes results, which for me, from a team side, impedes potential future talent from developing and coming into the pipeline. So we care about this because it has long-term material impacts into who is represented in the space, especially if toxicity is aimed at certain groups or demographics of people. The perception of toxicity, however, is also damaging because in a lot of spaces, this has gotten much better. I would say gaming is probably more inclusive now than it even was five years ago as people are becoming aware and understand that what is culturally accepted is shifting. But the negative, uh, sometimes misunderstanding of what the gaming industry represents hurts us from becoming mainstream, financially viable, and supported. If someone is like, oh, gaming's bad, I'm not even going to listen to what these people have to say, that closes off the potential for both us to develop and grow, but that person from developing and growing, and whether that person is a potential parent of a talent that we'd want to recruit, a sponsorship partner, a university that is trying to understand if esports curriculum should be supported. And so breaking down both the perception and the reality is something that we try to take a decent stab at as it relates to our wheelhouse and our expertise, but is a multifaceted problem that uh, I'm hopeful more and more people as we continue to talk about address and try to tackle and solve in their own way. Because what we have found is, again, it's a learned behavior, not inherent. I've been very influenced by writing by a scholar at Dartmouth called Will Chang, who's actually in the music department, believe it or not. But he wrote a book called Sound Play, one of his great books, which is specifically about the use of sound in major online gaming platforms and experiences. And as part of that uh, account, he also talks about the whole range of behaviors, whether they're supportive or abusive, that come in association with difference, with gender, with sexuality, with disability status in the online space. And one of the things that emerges from his work, and I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, just for our purposes, is that there's both a lot of the toxicity you're talking about and a lot of tools for capturing and pushing back at that toxicity and reshaping and reforming it. And I wonder when you think about that from the standpoint of esports teams and franchises, what are the strategies that are available to you to say, we're going to make sure that our organization and our teams are contributing in the positive way to this stuff rather than to the negative? How do you make those two things work together? It's been interesting for us as I've been a pretty big stickler. And so I can give good examples of, you know, how one of the problems we faced is finding good talent that want to come into esports because I need a head of finance. It's really hard to convince the 45-year-old controller at EY to come on over to an esports organization when they've never heard of the space. They don't really understand it. And when you Google gaming and esports not wonderful things came up about the stability, the perception, inclusion. And so we've been tackling this through a couple of different ways, some that are less sexy than others, but maybe for all the listeners, 
rolling their eyes, but the first thing we pushed was really a suite of back office benefits and support that emulate what you would find at a lot of our local peers in Seattle. Um, tech benefits, maternity leave, paternity leave, full suite of healthcare, a lot of the mental wellness and physical wellness support, first of its kind in esports. And people were surprised why are you spending on this? Esports is sexy. There's so much young people that want to come in. But if I can't attract the full multi-generational audience of experienced workers, I've already failed in inclusivity. And that hurts our bottom line results. So there's a lot of programming we put there to ensure we were getting a wide net of talent. On the competitive side, though, the esports space has been plagued, despite being digitally native, plagued by lack of good data use in scouting. It's a lot of who you know, who the coach knows, which becomes an incestuous, self-fulfilling pool of the same 50 people mm-hmm. are becoming pro players, mm-hmm. which is crazy because we we have s- such opportunity for talent elsewhere. And so we our claim to fame, especially in one of our games, League of Legends, was we've been using data and analytics to scout and recruit unknown quantities, unknown talent, and bring in and develop up over time talent that we wouldn't have found otherwise because they weren't already in network. That also led, that same method led to us being able to start one of the only mixed gender rosters in esports. So between the back office infrastructure, the empirical methods for scouting, and then of course, showcasing where we have wins in the education space. We do a lot of K through 12 programming, do a lot of university partnership around curriculum, anti-toxicity, anti-bullying, how to create a good personal brand for yourself on social media if the gaming or entertainment space is important. That investment of time and labor, which is authentic to ourselves, but also helps us build long-term returns in people that think positively about what we've done in the space is critically important. So it's interesting. One weird nuance with esports that is difficult is unlike an NBA team, like you know the game you're going to play. The game is there forever. Like basketball's probably not going to go anywhere and you kind of know the rules aren't going to all of a sudden change. We at e- in esports are beholden to a series of developers Riot does not act like Valve, does not act like Epic, and they can do whatever they kind of want. Some of that gives us perks. We own more IP, we own more rights than traditional sports teams might own of their athletes or their gameplay. On the flip side, EG used to be one of the best teams in the world at a game called Halo. Halo is no longer a competitive game that exists. So we have to be careful and always thoughtful of what games do we invest in? Because it's expensive to run an esports organization. And but also be good at the predictive nature of what games will resonate with certain audiences, certain fans, certain sponsor needs. And that's an art of esports leadership that was probably my biggest learning curve as no, there's no playbook for that. And that's the, how you pick your winning jockey in esports leadership is finding good leaders who are really attuned to the developers and changes of fan interest in games. And so why that's relevant to your question is those factors of what game do we invest in and why the in-game avatars and what they represent is actually a meaningful metric in understanding, do people play a game? And I I don't want to use names because I don't want to get angry phone calls later. But there's this one game that's very popular right now. It's a first-person shooter game. It's having a hard time proliferating certain region in Asia that is known for being very popular 
in gaming. And it's a huge region from a financial standpoint, huge region culturally. And there's a lot of theses as of why. But what when we use some of our derived stats around, we call it the matrix, like how we evaluate game titles to be in competitively, when we look at style of game, like first-person shooters do well in certain regions and they don't, that impacts our decision, as well as when a game has characters that look like people of that region, conversion tends to be higher. And we noticed this region didn't have any characters that looked like them. It's kind of why Overwatch was so popular. It was one of the first games that had a variety of characters and personas of different body weights, different skin colors, different nationalities that really brought in new fandoms and audiences that weren't there before versus a game that trying to not be offensive, but like Counter-Strike, where it's just terrorist versus counter-terrorist, army-looking white dude versus terrorist. You know, that, do- it doesn't att- that doesn't attract certain people. And so it's actually really important and something that we think about deeply in terms of what games do we enter into? Because there are some games, if you look at how they're structured, how the avatars are represented, are you a human or are you a car? Or are you an animal that really can dictate what fans are attracted and where viewers come from, as well as what sponsors feel comfortable sponsoring that title. But it's critically important for us to be aware of, to understand where we invest our time and money and focus. It's really fascinating to imagine. It's as though James Naismith, you know, the guy who invented basketball, owned the NBA, the NCAA basketball, international basketball, and every basketball league in the world, and could just say, I'm changing basketball now. I mean, right. so, you know, there, there obviously there are evolutions within those games. The game looks really different than it did when Naismith created or when my great-grandfather, who was about five foot four, was a semi-professional basketball player for the South Philadelphia Hebrew Association <laughs> team. And, you know, I, he, he would talk to us when, when we were kids about what basketball was like in those days. And it was, you know, it was even then hard to conceive how he could have been one of the handful of best basketball players on the East Coast. So things evolve, but they evolve more slowly and in a more decentralized way, I think, to some to some degree. Here, as you were saying, the games are wholly owned. What is to stop the developers from trying to own the universe of esports entirely? From saying, you know, like, we want to create our own teams and franchises and have those operate within our universes. In other words, from a sort of business organization standpoint, why is it efficient for something like EG to have, to field teams across a range of different platforms or games, rather than having everything consolidate in the platform owners? Well, this answer will vary by region, because how this is reflected in China is very different than how it's reflected in the U.S., as you probably could guess, there's more end-to-end ownership in especially the APAC region than you'd find here. But I don't even claim to be an expert in the APAC region, so I can speak to North America. Part of it is the beautiful limitations of capitalism, right? A, a, making a game is a very high level of effort, like company initiative. Um, Huge, vast upfront investment, right? Exactly. And it's rife with problems, rife with human component risk. It's just, it's an incredible undertaking. Adding a league, that is hard to do. I know I just posed a logistics problem. A developer could do that. 
But I don't know if it's always financially viable to own all components at the scale or without heavy future planning. That being said, there are certain developers that are higher touch, especially in the franchise leagues, the leagues that we have to pay to be a part of. And the incentive to us is league guaranteed revenue, but we have provisions and controls and rules that we must abide by versus some developers that are very hands-off laissez-faire. Um but there aren't many rights or provisions protecting us besides the logistics and the time. So it, what might happen in 10 years could be different than what's happening today. Um, but current state game, de- we're probably protected just by the fact that game development is such a big undertaking to support as an individual. It probably doesn't make as much sense or is the smartest vertical integration to jump from game development all the way to esports team. Big picture question. Assume that esports sort of continue on this trajectory towards greater and greater growth. How will they, how will esports as an industry change the way we broadly think about sports and its relationship to human experience? I mean, what do you see as the biggest impacts? You've already mentioned the, the, the geographically localized versus the non. There's the on screen versus off screen. There's the do you attend matches in a big urban, you know, dome or do you do it? At home, there's probably television versus streaming. I mean, there, there are a range of different ways that you're involved in something that's going to disrupt a very big industry with a lot of capital in it and a lot of power and a lot of social importance. So when you think about the bigger social impact that growth in esports is likely to have, how do you imagine that, that going? Well, I can share a hope around and what we try to help bridge. The big gap we have, especially if you continue to, like in the traditional sports, is we haven't figured out, partially due to the maturity and age of our space, as well as the accessibility to understanding, we haven't figured out the multi-generational or inherited audience type pathway. You know, traditional sports, you know, if you're, your dad's a Patriots fan, you're probably going to have to watch some Patriots at some point in your life. I mean, I was just at a family funeral of my great uncle who died at 92, who was a lifelong fan of the Washington sports team. He was 60 plus year season ticket holder and the Washington football team. And that was a central theme of the funeral because it mm-hmm. was a central theme of his life. And it was a way that he bridged family connections and generations. Right. And it was it was central. So it really was generational exactly the way that you're describing. Yes. And we haven't seen that play out yet because I would say that probably the first generation of diehard esports as we know today fans are the older millennials at this at this stage. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But seeing how we bridge esports to a younger audience, continue to be multi-generational, will be important because, and I don't want to sound pessimistic, but why I love having these conversations is it is hard to convince, you know, even my parents, if you ask my parents, what, what does your daughter do? She's like, ah, she works in tech. <laughs> like, they don't really understand what I do. And I don't know if they, they Send ever them the will. Podcast. Send them the podcast. Maybe that'll help. <laughs> um, they're proud of me, but they, they don't really get it. Um, I don't think they know how I get a paycheck. But um, it's harder to bridge those, that older audience. And I hope younger audiences are able to carry some of that heavy lifting to help this continue to be multi-generational, to be sticky. Fascinating. So transgenerational connection would be a desirable thing for sure. And if it did, it might supplement or even displace some of the other kinds of identity-based features of sports. And that might have some impact on the way we identify around place, around country. You know, in the Olympics, we're always thinking about country identity. 
Right. Um, and yet that's a very, seems like a very dated way to think about, you know, athletes at the greatest level internationally, right? I mean, on some level, who really cares what countries they represent? And when they play in professional leagues, they come from all over the world, typically to wherever they go. And that's pretty cosmopolitan. What you're working in, what your industry represents is an even further globalization or cosmopolitanization of, of sport. But I also wonder if there might be some loss of some of the, you know, familial or identity-based features that are more generationally bound. It's a tough thought to ponder because part of what I see esports as is quite beautiful, that you can be someone who loves esports and find community with people, countries and time zones far away who don't even speak the same language of you. But I'm hopeful for this because I think it is a natural progression of the attitudes and behaviors of our youngest generation right now, how they engage in the digital world and how they consume content. It is much less, where am I physically located to who has values, beliefs, and ideas like me in a broader scale. So I'm, I'm optimistic, a little bit biased, but optimistic. Nicole, thank you for educating me and, and our listeners. And I'm very confident that we're going to be hearing a lot from you in the future, whether it's in this space or, or other spaces that you find yourself in. And I really want to extend my appreciation to you for, for spending some time with me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Noah. We'll be right back. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, so they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, 
I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What I learned from Nicole is genuinely fascinating with serious implications for society, for our future, and for how we interact with each other in the spaces of entertainment and sports in the world. Listening to Nicole, I felt like a whole world was opening up to me. And it's a world in which I think certain elements are familiar, but others actually seem to be extraordinarily different. I confess that for me, and I'm someone who loves to watch sports, the idea of watching somebody play a video game is still new and novel. Listening to Nicole, I was able to see that the mere excellence of the people performing it is actually reminiscent of the joy that we take in watching people perform any activity to an excellent degree. And we all experience that during the Olympics when we watch some sports that we don't ordinarily watch and are nevertheless gripped to see it done at the highest possible level. Furthermore, as Nicole pointed out, there's an entertainment component, especially with regard to streaming, that is actually more laid back and fun than a lot of the watching of sports that we do, because we're not just observing competition, we're also observing fun being had. And that invites us as viewers to tap into that experience of fun, much more so than we do when we watch professional athletes who, to a certain degree, are having fun, but to a much greater degree, are all business. Another takeaway that really struck me was the idea that in the world of esports, where you're from has nothing to do with what teams you root for. I don't think it's possible to overstate how transformative an effect expanded esports would therefore have on cultures in North America, in Europe, and elsewhere around the world where local and national identities are bound up in sports teams, whether those sports teams are university-based, regionally based, city based, or even nationally based. In our world of fading national and local identity associations, sports have become important glue for holding us together. On the other hand, sports also have the capacity via those local identities to bring out the worst in us and to make us polarized and regionalized. In contrast, esports both hold out the hope of true cosmopolitanism where you could root for anyone from anywhere, and also of potentially weakening some of the local ties that are in fact of some value to us in living in civic communities. Last but not least, I walked away from this conversation with Nicole with a sense of being extraordinarily impressed to hear a young person so dynamically committed to the growth of an industry, so deeply steeped in its details, and based on this conversation, I'm pretty confident that we should be all watching her career going forward alongside the career of evil geniuses. Until the next time I speak to you, breathe deep, 
think deep thoughts, and have a little fun, maybe watching esports. If you're a regular listener, you know I love communicating with you here on Deep Background. I also really want that communication to run both ways. I want to know what you think are the most important stories of the moment and what kinds of guests you think it would be useful to hear from more. So I'm opening a new channel of communication. To access it, just go to my website, noah-feldman.com. You can sign up for my newsletter and you can tell me exactly what's on your mind. Something that would be really valuable to me and I hope to you too. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.